has been called the king of the New Testament epistles, and for good reason. The letter is all about God and the good news that no matter who we are or what we've done, though we're all sinful and well-deserving of God's judgment, we can be saved from God's wrath simply by trusting in God's Son. We are put right with God through grace, through faith. Salvation is a gift from God. This is the message of Romans. Now let's join Pastor Ross with our verse-by-verse study through this incredible book. All righty, I welcome you back to your seats. We're going to get started here. Back to the most encouraging verses in the Bible, Romans chapter 8. We're going to ask the Lord for his help. Let's pray together. Now, Father, as Romans chapter 8, the most encouraging chapter in the Bible by far, comes before us for consideration. Lord, by your spirit, would you help that information to go from our heads to our hearts, that it make a difference in the way we live, to have your joy, your boldness, your confidence as you want us to have. In Christ's name, amen. Well, humans have rules and regulations to keep it from happening here But God himself doesn't have a problem with it in the least. I'm talking about conflict of interest. And there's one right there. (laughs) Now, let's put it this way. The judge in the county courthouse uh, before whom you stand uh, to answer for your alleged wrongdoing, the man who's wearing those black robes cannot be your dear, dear dad. In that case, the judge must recuse himself from presiding uh, the case lest he show you partiality or favor and kind of kind of uh, let you off the hook and show you some mercy which you didn't deserve. Well, the judge in Sonoma County might have to recuse himself if a son or daughter came before him in arraignment But the judge of all the earth, when dealing with his children on every level of life in every circumstance that concerns you, will do no such thing. He will take the case and he will show you favor you do not deserve. As we pick up here in Romans chapter 8, we'll find out that God is for us even when we're not for him at times. And he does this. uh, Of course, there's no conflict of interest uh, when he shows partiality, and there's certainly nothing unethical about it or improper. Because he says, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. I will be merciful to whom I will be merciful. And it's all just. It's all good. It's all legit. It's all ethical. Why? Because the Bible tells us that God so loved the world that he died. 
In Christ, Christ was a sacrifice, a form of payment for not only our sins, but the sins of the entire world. So sins are paid for. And he made one stipulation. In order for me to forgive your sins and show you favor you don't deserve, that's what favor means, grace and mercy, all I want you to do is not be good enough, but I want you to trust me and yield your life. Just simple faith. Believe in him, you shall not perish, but have everlasting life. And so with sins paid for completely and the stipulation met that you trust in him, he now, because you become his child, it says, Jesus says in John chapter three, you have to be born from above. You need to be born again. And when that happens, when we have that simple faith, new life is birthed within us, not because of mom and dad, but because of God. And in that moment, we become the beloved child of God to whom he can show compassion and mercy. Let us off the hook. Why? Because those sins have been completely paid for. By whom? By himself on the cross. And so no conflict of interest. He will show you favor in every area of your life. And that is what Romans 8 is all about. It's an incredible chapter filled with these beautiful promises that really set our hearts free. So Paul has just told us some amazing things, how God has has predestined us to heaven those of us he foreknew from the beginning of time that he called us out of darkness and set us on the right path to life and that he had fully justified us, not because we're good, but because we believed. And he, past tense, glorified us, already has finished the process. We're as good as already there. So he just said that, and now he's going to say, I want you to have a takeaway What's your takeaway? What should you conclude after I just told you all of this? Verse 31. What then shall we say in response to all of these things? If God is for us, who could be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It's God who pardons and acquits, justifies. Who is he that condemns? Who could condemn you? Christ Jesus died for you. More than that, he was raised to life for you and is at the right hand of God for you, interceding for you. Verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? How about trouble or hardship, persecution or famine, nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written in Psalm 44 and verse 22, King David, he says, For your sake, O Lord, we, your people, face death all day long. We're considered as sheep to be slaughtered on this hostile planet, but no. In all of these things I just mentioned, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded beyond a shadow of a doubt, convinced that neither death nor life 
nor angels, nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen? Amen. Yeah, so if you were stuck on that uh, deserted island and you had only one page from the Bible... I would suggest Romans chapter 8, amen. Wow, just so wonderful to look at. And so really, here's what God has done. In Romans chapter 8, he has built up so many great and precious promises. He's told us how we're eternally secure. So God, the Holy Spirit, writing through Paul saying, I want you to have five takeaways you should draw to have a draw a conclusion in five different ways about how eternally secure and confident and bold and filled with joy despite anything any kind of suffering that you may have to temporarily endure here in a fallen and very frustrating world that's the point he's got five takeaways here there are Five questions, really. And so the first one, verse 31, what shall we say in response to all of this is going to need a little bit of context. Do you remember the golden chain? The golden chain. So he's just said, to give you context, he's just said, God knew you before there was a world and set his love upon you. And in knowing you before, he predestined you to make it all the way to heaven. And he called you out of this dark life, and then he acquitted you of all wrongdoing because he paid for it through Christ. And then he, in the prophetic past tense of this word, he's already done something that hasn't yet come to pass, but it is finished. It's just not here yet, and that is that you are glorified, you are fitted with an eternal body, glorious like his, ready and equipped to reign and rule with him forever. It's a done deal. It's already happened in the past, prophetically speaking, and it must come to pass. Therefore, he's got these questions. Here they all are, which make up really our passage. The five questions, the five takeaways. He's saying, what can we say to all this? Is there anything to add? Did I leave anything out? So here are your five conclusions, O believer, since God has done all of these things for you on your behalf and not hinging on your effort at all. None of the things that concerns your eternal salvation hinges upon you only that you believe. And trusted him. And that, of course, is evidenced by a changed life. He's got five takeaways. He's saying they're in the form of questions that are unanswerable. That those are called rhetorical questions to make a statement even more grand. If God is for us, who could be against us? I have replaced the question mark with the exclamation point. That's the point. There's nobody. If God is voting for you, who cares who doesn't vote for you? If God didn't withhold his son, won't he also give you everything else you need? Number three, takeaway. Who will bring any charge against those who God has predestined is that word. The fourth is like it. Who can condemn you 
if Christ died for you and is interceding for you, and he's the one who gets to decide. The one who decides your eternal destiny is the one who is for you and the one who paid for those sins. And he's the one determining if you go to heaven or if you perish. But it's for you. And he's the payment. So who could condemn you? And then lastly, he says, what could ever separate us from God's love? Pity the fool who would try to get in between God and his beloved. They just can't do it. Because even when they try, they will fail and we will be more than conquerors. So those are the five questions. Let's go ahead and isolate the first one. I kind of condense them a little bit because this, there's only so much space on a slide. And so here we go. So the, the first one here is, if God is for us, does it really matter who opposes us? Who's the us? Well, I saw a bumper sticker again, and the bumper sticker goes like this. God is for everyone, and the everyone's underlined. Well, I can appreciate the idea, but it's theologically in error. Let me explain. God loves everyone, but... He wants everyone to come to the knowledge of the truth and be saved. He is not willing that anyone perish. He wants them to repent, and that means to do a U-turn from being opposed from him. So he is not for people who are not for him. He loves people who are not for him. He is not for his enemies. He loves his enemies, but he's not for his enemies, those who oppose him. And so even Jesus said of God the Father, quote, Luke chapter uh, 6 and verse 35, our Father in heaven is kind to the wicked and the ungrateful. So you can have a bumper sticker says that he says he is kind to all. That's okay. He loves all. That's okay. But you can't say he's for everybody, Christians. No, 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 no. He works all things together for good to them who love God and called according to his purpose. Not your own. Not the world's. Not the devil's. Not your wife's. Not your husband's. Equal opportunity there, husband. (laughs) Or wife, I hope you caught that there. So notice how the questions framed the first one. Had Paul simply asked, who's against you, O believer? There'd be a long list of formidable foes. The Bible would even help you identify some of those things that are truly against you. But that's not the question. But if it were the question, uh, Jesus himself said this, I've got a slide for it in John 15, if the world hates you, I intended to have a slide for you. (laughs) I'll read it to you. If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. You don't belong to the world. I chose you, chose and chose you out of the world. And this is why the world doesn't appreciate you, doesn't love you. Hates you. That's what it says. You rub them the wrong way because I rub them the wrong way. My teachings they rejected. And you teach what I teach, they're going to reject you and give you the same kind of reception that they gave me. He says a a servant isn't above his master. Right? So why do you think the world is going to stand up and applaud and, and welcome you with open arms? 
You're not above me. I came first and you're doing my work and they crucified, rejected and mocked and scorned me, persecuted me my whole ministry. What are you expecting? So yeah, the answer to a question who could be against you, oh Christian, is a lot. Your own heart can be against you. The world, the flesh, the devil. What a bitter backlash, a Christian uh, student at UC Berkeley. She's in the headline news, national headline news, because she abstained from a vote that violated her conscience. She's a uh, student, they call them senators. They're the student governance at UC Berkeley. And man, I got a protest picture. Who could be against you, Isabella? Isabella is not pictured there. These are the protesters who have uh, slandered her, threatened her physically. Hundreds are calling for her to be ousted from the Senate, ousted from the school, and ousted from Berkeley itself, simply because she abstained. She didn't vote against. And here's what she said afterwards. She says, listen, I just want to say, I love everybody in this room. God loves everybody in the world. Uh, I think prejudice and discrimination is wrong on every level. She just covered the bases. And then with gentleness and love, she just said, but I simply must abstain from voting in a way that violates my conscience before God. And all hell broke loose, right? So if you ask her, I got a picture of her just for a second. If you ask that sweet Christian Isabella, Isabella, who's against you? Put the other slide back on. <laughs> She'd say, there's a lot of people against me. Now reframe the question, Isabella, Isabella. If God, who spoke in the universe, leapt into existence, he's for you, he's in your corner, who could be against you? And she just smiled and say, no one could be against me if God is for me. The body they may kill, and that's all they can do. They can oust you from the student senate, but they can't oust you from your position in heaven. Amen. I think you get the point. Thank you for that. One writer said, if God is smiling at me, let the whole world Brown. One thumbs up from God, let the universe put their thumbs down because all I need is God's approval that God is for me and it doesn't matter. It may hurt and make me miserable, make you uncomfortable and put you through it. But in the end, in the long run, God is working it off for what? For good. Because why? You love him and you're called according to his purpose. So, so technically, who's against you? A lot of things. Hostile world. Our own sinful natures trying to sabotage the ship. Trying to commit mutiny. Who? Your own heart. Just wreck your marriage right now. Come on. You can do this. Destroy your family. Come on, I'm rooting for you. Let me show you how. Let me help you throw away that career right now. You want your kids visiting you every other Christmas? I can show you how. And who's telling you that? Your own heart. 
because it's against you. But if God is on board and he's given you the Holy Spirit, and if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live because God's for you. Not even your own sinful heart can be against you. Amen? Amen. Takeaway number two. He who didn't spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give you all things, the non-condensed version there of the takeaway. So here's Paul's argument for those who are always insecure about what if this and worries and anxieties, which we all have about every aspect of our human need. We always think God is a million miles away. He's lost our address. He doesn't know my phone number anymore. There's 7 billion of us. I don't blame him. There's some pretty serious things going on in the world. He's got more better things to do than to listen to my every little prayer. That's where you're wrong. Because if he gave you Christ, the greater, will he withhold the lesser? That's the logic. So the question isn't just, won't God give you everything you need? Well, we know that already, you know, but we're so uh, kind of fragile and fickle and, and, uh, and we just seem like, well, he might, maybe, so he likes to give us something to look at. I mean, the list of daunting human need, think about it. We need material goods and possessions, we need adequate financial resources. We need to feel purpose and meaning and contentment. We'd like a little joy. <laughs> Loving relationships. We need to feel accepted, like we matter, that we're seen. We have insecurities. We need help with our deep wounds. We need help with difficult people and strained relationships. We need help with people who don't like us. We need help with confusion and fixing the messes we make of things. We need help with besetting sins. And a besetting sin is a sin that grabs you by the scruff of your soul and will not let go for dear life. It is with you and with you and with you. We need help. We have needs. We need help when our bodies break down. You know what they're doing right now as you're sitting here listening? They're breaking down. That's, can you hear them? <laughs> I can hear it right here. Even though my ears are going, I can still hear the sound of things falling apart. Who's going to help you when your heart is broken in two and you cry yourself to sleep? The question is simply this. Won't God give you everything you need if he's already given you the greatest, most generous gift of all? Why are you doubting that every little concern of yours isn't a huge concern to him when he did not spare his own son? Let me take you back to what Paul is getting at through the Holy Spirit. He's saying, look at the cross and stop doubting. If he's already given his son for you, the greatest gift of all, he did not spare his own son. The word spare there in the Greek is to 
save somebody from loss or discomfort or destruction when it's in their full power to do so. Jesus asked to be spared. Let me remind you of the setting. He took Peter, James, and John with him that night. He was betrayed, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. He said, my soul is overwhelmed to the point of death. He said, stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little farther, he fell to the ground and prayed, if it's possible, that he might be spared. He wanted to be spared from this hour. He said, Abba, Father, spare me from this. Everything is possible for you. Spare me from this cup. Spare me from this fate. Yet not what I will, but what you will. With great sweat, Drops of blood streaming down the sinless face of the Son of God with loud cries and prayers to the one who could save him from that kind of shameful, torturous death. He said, spare me. And the voice said, no. (laughs) Request denied. I will not spare you. Because of you and me. It was our only hope. Jesus said, if that's their only hope, if this is their only hope to bring them back, to get them out of harm's way, then I'll go through with it. And he said, I cannot and will not spare you on account of them. Then he says, listen, If he didn't spare his son, he's more than happy to notice this, and people miss it all the time, to throw in everything else along with Christ, to first give you Christ, he says. He's pleased to give you everything you need along with him. And here's what he's saying. One writer caught it, said it so nicely. Our eyes are forever fixed on the things we need. Our God is forever reminding us, first and foremost, that he is what we need. You see? So he says, God has already proven to you. He's given you the mountain. You want the anthill? He'll give you the anthill. All right, he's given you the gold. And you need the copper. He'll give you the copper. He already gave you the gold. The silver's coming. He's not going to withhold it. I, I mean, $200 million. You know, and you're concerned about the $100 need or whatever it is, spiritual uh, ways of speaking. That's what he's saying. He poured out the treasure to prove to your insecure soul that he's concerned about every little detail and is good and cares about it. So the third takeaway, really, and the fourth are related because it's an imaginary courtroom where heaven and hell is on the line. And so we can have those two statements in the form of questions, really. Who would dare accuse someone who God himself has chosen and predestined for eternal life? Who will accuse, who will condemn 
the one God has chosen, the one God has forgiven or justified. That's the gist of what's looking at you here. And that's the thing. You know, we are well aware of our terrible sinning and our fallen nature. We know, and we're the only ones, plus God, who knows what goes through our mind in a day, what kind of thoughts and reactions that bubble up all the time. And so we always, most people, always kind of fight the feelings of condemnation because we know what hypocrites we can be, how double-tongued we are, how quick it is so easy to lie or to tear somebody apart who we love and who loves us but behind their backs. So that kind of sits on us and we start to think, how could God really love me? Am I really going to heaven? I mean, if people really knew who I really could be without the grace of God. And so God is quick to say, listen, you're safe. No prosecution against you, spiritually speaking, can succeed. And it's impossible for any charge leveled at us to stick, even if it's true. It cannot stick because it's been paid for in full. Listen to this. He says, who dares would, would raise their bony finger and, and say something uh, of condemnation towards somebody God has chosen? Let me expand on that from Ephesians chapter 1. Listen. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. So before there was a world, he chose us to be guilt free to be blameless because of our faith in Christ who paid for all of our sins. So it goes on to say, in love, he predestined us for adoption through sonship, through Jesus Christ, in accordance with his pleasure and will. Who's going to point their finger at that guy? The answer Nobody. Again, the question is not who would accuse us. Oh, sadly, there's, so, there's a list there. The people who don't like us would accuse us. They do accuse us. They criticize us. They're, they're people uh, who are envious or jealous might make an accusation. People we have offended, rightly or wrongly. And let's not forget our own hearts, as I've mentioned it certainly gives it the old college try. But thankfully, the Bible says in 1 John chapter 3 and verse 20, if our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our hearts. We run to God when the heart is saying, you loser. God will say, you turn to me. You're my son. You're my child. You're a winner. And the greatest accuser of all. Who would bring a charge? Who does? That's his number one job description. His name, devil, diabolos, means the accuser of God's people. And in Revelation, you find him named as the one who day and night brings accusations against God's people. Why does he do that? Why is he obsessed with us and pointing out our sin? Because he demands justice of God to damn us that we would share his doomed destiny. That's why he's obsessed with pointing that out. You must exercise justice in this case because he, A, B, C, D, E, 
right? That's what he does. But he's talking to the one who died for everything on his list of accusations with the stipulation that whosoever believes in him would have all of that list wiped out. (coughs) And that is why we're saved. Because there is a long list. And they're true. And part of the reason I believe that there's weeping and gnashing of teeth for those who perish is because we are let off the hook of things that are worse than what they've committed. God will bring down justice on the heads of those who, 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 who reject the Son of God as payment for them. And for us, he shows us partiality. He shows us favor and grace because sins are paid for. It's legit. It's justice. Justice was done on the cross. I'll take a look at what Colossians says. Colossians chapter 2. When you were dead in your sins, you don't do anything good. You can't. You couldn't. God did it for you. That's why you're eternally secure. When you were dead in your sins, God made made you alive with Christ. When you believed He forgave all of our sins. He canceled the record of the charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross. This is the verse you need to quote to your wicked heart that's insecure, that always wants to condemn you, along with the malevolent unseen forces in this world that always point out your hypocrisy, your falling short, and how you deserve the wrath and condemnation of God. You go ahead and say this. He canceled the record of the charges against me and took it away by nailing it to the cross. Never to be used against me. Ever. He puts our sins in the sea of forgetfulness. The devil, and maybe you, and a few others who you have offended, remember. But when God wills himself to forget something, trust me. It's forgotten. And so he says, you don't have anything to worry about. Who's going to condemn you? My word, your ransom payment. So here's what he says. You're worried about being condemned? Are are you kidding me? He says, Christ, who's in charge of whether somebody goes to heaven or hell, he died for you before there was even a planet to forgive your sins. And the payment has risen and speaks on your defense, on your behalf. The payment, Christ is the payment. Big word, propitiation. It means he satisfied the wrath of God fully. He paid for them. The payment that gets you off the hook has risen from the dead. The payment itself is speaking on your behalf, waving his arms, as it were, with the payment Evidence is right there, and he's the one who determines heaven or hell. So he says, how can you be condemned if your payment has taken on life and the payment in itself is standing there in the person of the one who rules and makes the choice for heaven or hell? You're in pretty good standing because God is for you. Nobody could be against you. Every charge against you was paid. 
Every charge against you, a lash of a whip was laid on him. Every accusation of yours was a pluck of a beard on his sinless face. Everything that you could be charged with was put through his hands with a spike. A sword went through his side. He cried out, it's paid. It's all paid. That's what it is finished means. It's paid. So you rise before this. You rise before your payment, who's standing there in love for you, who's interceding. He's your older brother, your defense attorney in heaven, right? And has paid. And he looks behind him. It's God, our Father. So we've got the Father judging and presiding over all. And we've got the Son of God, our defense attorney, who himself is the payment for our sins, interceding to the Father on our behalf. Who's going to condemn you? The answer? Go ahead. Well, can you really live that way? Can you actually believe that and, and, and enter into a little bit of joy about it? All right. Last takeaway. Who could ever separate us from God's love is the question. So welcome to the pinnacle of Romans chapter 8 and really the whole book. Because we started out in the valley of the shadow of death, didn't we? In Romans chapter 1, it was pretty gloomy, pretty dark, pretty ugly, pretty hopeless, helpless, doomed sinners that we were. And now he's got us to the mountain, the mountaintop of Mount Everest, where he can say, now I want you to look around. You've got the view of the whole world, knowing what God has done on your behalf. And he's going to say, who? could ever or what could ever separate you from this love. God himself by his spirit wed your soul and your spirit to his that you are one with Christ. Christ is in you. You are in him. Christ is in God. God is in him. You're in a really safe place place and what could what could separate what God has joined together let no man tear apart he uses that in relationship to him the groom the bridegroom and us his beloved what God has joined together no man can separate when it comes to his love let's go to the verses and close up now he's going to say, okay, there are seven candidates who you might think maybe possibly could tear you from Christ and his love. Number one, let's talk about them. Could trouble do it? So the word for trouble there, if you follow along there, uh, it means difficulties. It really means to be squeezed like the very life out of you, to be pressured, to be pressed down to where you cannot breathe from the troubles. And then number two, hardship. Can hardship separate this bond that was forged before there was an earth by God himself who spoke? Can trouble hardship. Hardship there in the Greek means a narrow space to be in a tight, constrained place 
trapped in a corner cannot rip you apart? No. Persecution, it means to be hunted down like an animal because of your relationship with Christ. Famine can famine, a huge lack, a bankruptcy, uh, deprivation of daily need of food or water, that kind of thing. There's an old King James back in the day saying, it said, when the well runs dry, God's grace is nigh. God's grace is nigh. Can nakedness, not enough clothes, that's the idea there, not enough clothing, inadequate uh, daily necessities, that's what he's talking about there. How about danger? The word there means risk, accidents, illnesses, mishaps, threats, evildoers who victimize you. That happens in this world. But can any of that undo this? What Christ has done by joining himself to, to you for eternity. No, none of it has a chance. And then he says sword, the idiom there, a violent death. It could be a, a, an a, executioner's axe or some armed robber or something. Jesus said, stop being afraid of people who can just kill your body. He goes, that's all they can do to you. They can't touch your soul. I got this. He says, you know what you should be afraid of? Be afraid of the one who, after they kill the body, decides if you're going to heaven and hell. Matthew chapter 10. That's what Jesus says. Stop being so afraid of losing your life because you have everlasting life. And nobody and nothing can take it away. That's the whole point of Romans 8. And then he says, speaking of death or losing your head, in this hostile world, he quotes Psalm 44, verse 22, where King David wrote 3,000 years ago about being a person of faith in a hostile world. He said, you know, for your sake, O God, we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. In other words, the surrounding nations looked at Israel with hostility and was always after them, while trying to, quote, as the psalmist says, Wipe Israel off the face of the earth. And they've been saying it for 3,000 years. They haven't been able to do it, but they've been saying it. So the psalmist says, hey, man, and here's the point he quotes, why he's quoting it. If anybody knows what suffering is like and what the threats that come our way, it's the people of God. Because we're like kind of in a hostile world. We're the sheep. They're the wolves. And we get it all the time. We're always getting bit, bit, bit. And thank God you live in this country where there's some form of protection. They don't do so well in other countries. And so that's why he quotes. And he says, you know what? It's kind of like we're all slated for the slaughtering house in this world. And then he says, no. But even then, even if it's true that every one of us is lined up in a world that's ready to take off our heads. We are more than conquerors because of him and his great love for us. But no, wow. And then he says something crazy in verse 37. Look at it. He calls us not conquerors. He calls us more than conquerors. I'm confused by that, okay? Because after you conquer 
What more can you do? I, I, I mean, I'd just be glad to be a conqueror, right? Uh, but he says, oh, no, no, no. Despite the appearance, too. Because the appearance looks like defeat and loss and everything in the list. But he says, no, even with all of those things in the list, oh, God is doing this thing. There's going to be a role reversal. And you are more than a conqueror. What's more than a conqueror mean? One writer said, being more than a conqueror means that in addition to merely surviving, God is at work powerfully and profoundly advancing his cause through the apparent adversity that you've suffered. So you're more than a conqueror. Let me explain it to you this way. Jesus on a cross. <laughs> it looked pretty bad. Stripped, bruised, battered. You know it says that he didn't look human after all the swelling and the battering that he took. That's the son of God. And so he's dying, an agonizing, shameful death. And as he is, all his enemies are high-fiving each other. Right? The devil's in hell. <laughs> They're having a party. I mean, look at this. The Son of God writhing in pain, gasping for air, and dies with a loincloth. Maybe dies there like a criminal on a piece of wood he created. But in this terrible tragedy, he was more than a conqueror, even though everybody saw it as a defeat. Jesus rose from the dead and opened the gates of heaven for whosoever, the most wicked, terrible person in the whole world, and the best, wonderful, upstanding moralist in the world who still has a sin problem, could be reconciled to God and have eternal life. So more than conquering, that's the prototype. So when we have terrible things that happen to us, he says, listen, you have no idea how God is using this to advance his cause. You are not just a conqueror. You didn't die in vain. The bad guys didn't win. Everybody thinks the bad guys win when they look at the cross. But actually, Christ was more than a conqueror. And anybody who follows in his footsteps, all of these things. So he goes on to say, listen, I'm convinced that word there means beyond a shadow of a doubt that neither death nor life. So he's saying, no, no crisis in death, no calamity in life, no demons or angels. He's saying no creature lurking in unseen spiritual realms. Then he says, nothing's present. No crisis today or things to come, or tomorrow, or the next day, or what about the next day after that? No, he says, no, today, tomorrow, and into forever, nothing. And then he says, no powers. That word means kind of sorcery, no spell, no force, no deception, no temptation, no power of hell. Neither the highest heights or the deepest depths and then he says, my favorite line, as I've often said, nor anything else I may have left off the list. <laughs> nor anything else in all of creation, because he knows how we are. We're like, but, 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 but. And he says, you know what? 
There's no ands, ifs, buts, or maybes about this because God has willed on your behalf to foreknow you, to predestine you, to call you, to justify, to glorify you, and his plan cannot be thwarted. That's Job chapter 42 and verse 2, if you're taking notes. Listen, lots of things are out there. You're dealing with a lot of things, some of you pretty heavy stuff. But God wants you to know that you know today in your heart that nothing in all creation can separate you from the wonderful plan that God has put into place for you. It cannot and will not be undone or derailed. And he takes an oath by himself and swears by the Lord himself to carry us through. He who began this good work in you, he will carry it to completion until that day to present you blameless and spotless before the throne where your father and your older brother are standing there interceding on your behalf. You know what? You finish this, the line for me. If God is for us, Good conclusion. Let's pray together. Now, Father God, all of these thoughts are overwhelming us, but we know they're true. We do pray once again that you take what we know in our heart, in our minds, and help them to be accessed and understood deep in our hearts. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. You've been listening to The Rocks Podcast. Our regular services are held on Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 10.30 a.m. in Santa Rosa, California. If you'd like to learn more, please visit our website at cctherock.org.